Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Alex Padilla is the guy that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has chosen as the next U.S. senator has chosen Alex Padilla as the new, essentially California's new senator, the replacement for uh, Kamala Harris. Padilla is the son of immigrants, Mexican immigrants who were a cook and a dishwasher, respectively. He's been a state senator. He is currently the uh, secretary of state for the state of California. He's a good guy, a solid good guy. And while he was secretary of state, under Padilla's leadership, voter registration is at an all-time high. Over 22 million Californians are registered to vote, an increase of over 4 million since the day he took office. And voting is happening at the highest rate in nearly seven decades. He's expanded access to the ballot. He's protected our elections, overseeing upgrades and all these kinds of things. Major issues that he has worked on, legislation that he's worked on, fighting climate change, expanding educational opportunity, fostering healthier communities, fighting for universal health care, increasing gun safety, passing common sense gun safety measures like tracking stolen guns and stopping felons from, from possessing body armor, harnessing innovation. He was an engineer. He fought for ethical advancement of science and technology, authored legislation protecting Californians from discrimination based on genetic information, wrote the bill creating a statewide earthquake early warning system. And his wife is a mental health advocate. They are, it's just like, this is really good news. This is just genuinely good news. Also, the, the Republicans finally found a dead person who voted or a live person who voted pretending to be a dead person. They found one. It's amazing. Donald Trump might be calling a press conference at any minute. And this was near Philadelphia. This guy, his name is Bruce Bartman. He's 70 years old. He lives in Marple Township, just right outside Philadelphia. And on August 20th of this year, he used Pennsylvania's online voter registration portal to register his dead mother, Elizabeth Bartman, and his dead mother-in-law, Elizabeth Wyman, who died in 2019. And apparently he only voted one of them. He requested an absentee ballot from the state of Pennsylvania for his mother, who is dead. He received the ballot. He mailed the ballot in. He voted. And the state busted him. State of Pennsylvania, they, they caught him. Which is what happens when you vote illegally like this. This was not the result of some giant witch hunt by Donald Trump looking for illegal voters or, you know, something in the Sidney Powell or, or Rudy Giuliani. This is routine stuff in the state of Pennsylvania. They busted this guy. And, he, and he's looking at going to prison. Oh, by the way, he voted for Donald Trump. Or he, his dead mother voted for Donald Trump. So they have now found one dead person who voted, and, they, and that vote was for Donald Trump. And this Trump humper, this, this uh, Trump acolyte, this Trump follower, uh, looks like he might be going to prison. So there's that. California Peggy posted this over on Democratic Underground. I think it's just brilliant. It's a, an old saying. It's a well-known saying by John Adams. He said, government is instituted for the common good. By the way, I recommend that you read the preamble to the Constitution sometime if you want to know why we have this country, right? Anyway, government is instituted for the common good, for the protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness of the people, 
and not for the profit, honor, or private interest of any one man, family, or class of men. Of course, today we would say people, but you get the point. There is an allegation that Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election are actually not just a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, which is being, you know, a charge that has been made by some of the swing states, some of the cities in the the swing states, the largely African-American cities that Trump has tried to have their votes thrown out. But it's also a violation of a law that was passed in 1871. Now, keep in mind, 1871 was before 1876, which was when African-Americans newly freed, formerly enslaved people were essentially stabbed in the back by the federal government with the Tilden Hayes election and the so-called compromise that they worked out, which was they would end Reconstruction in exchange for putting a Republican in the White House, even though the Democrat got more votes. Um, so this was, this was five years before that, or six years, arguably, before the end of Reconstruction. And in 1871, the Klan was threatening black people who were voting, you know, in the South. So the federal government passed a law, it's called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. It was during that little window after the Civil War, after Andrew Johnson left office, and the betrayal of 1876. So this was basically, what, 1868 to 1876 was the Reconstruction era, and there was a genuine attempt to stop the Klan and to to create a pluralistic society in the United States. And the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 makes it a crime well, this is what the lawsuit says. Okay, this is a quote from the lawsuit. Now, this is the NAACP and three black voters from Detroit who are suing the Trump campaign for this. Quote, under the specter of preventing fraud, defendants, that would be Trump and his campaign, engaged in a conspiracy executed through a coordinated effort to disenfranchise voters by disrupting vote counting efforts, by lodging groundless challenges during recounts, and by attempting to block certification of election results through intimidation and coercion of election officials and volunteers. And I think if you just think of the news reports from the last month or so now, going back to the election in November, and you look at what Republicans have been doing around the country, and particularly the maggots, you know, the Trump protégés, the Trump followers, what they have been doing, it certainly falls into these categories of disrupting voting count efforts, you know, trying to break into buildings, the groundless challenges. And this is the stuff in a slightly more sophisticated fashion. I mean, they're not showing up wearing hoods and, and carrying burning crosses or, or lighting crosses on the front lawns of, of the state house. Well, in Michigan, actually, they showed up with a noose around the neck of a doll that they said was Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, that's Klan stuff, right? They just don't call themselves the Klan anymore. You know, the Klan, oh, that's so, you know, 1920s. Now it's, you know, the three percenters or whatever. I mean, they've got, they've got new names. They've reinvented themselves. But it's the same old shtick, and it's the same people. Basically saying, you know, we don't want black people voting as their shtick. I mean, that's, that's what they have to say. And finally, uh, Mitch McConnell, oh, finally, actually, I'll, I'll just give you a short one here. 2020 is now the deadliest year in the history of the United States in terms of actual numbers or percentages. In terms of percentages, it is actually the second deadliest year in the history of the United States. Maybe the third, we don't know about the Civil War, but uh, from since the flu pandemic of 1918. But in absolute numbers, this is it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And it's all because Donald Trump and his merry band decided to try to get as many Americans infected as possible so he wouldn't have to deal with COVID. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter 1. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. 
Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, 
we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. There are a number of really amazing stories in the news, too, that I wanted to get into today. First of all, just consider the logic of this. The Republican Party, and I say the Republican Party because Rona McDaniel, Rona Romney McDaniel, Mitt's niece who runs the RNC, is saying this out loud. She's the head of the RNC. A majority of elected Republicans in Congress signed on to this document basically saying that the election was rigged, that the Democrats are so good at rigging elections, they are so competent at this, that they were able to deny Donald Trump his place in the White House. Now, oddly enough, none of the Republicans who actually won in their elections are saying, hey, wait a minute, my election was not legitimate. I shouldn't have won. <laughs> They're not saying this. But just think about this. If the Democrats really were that good at rigging elections, why don't we have single-payer health care? Why aren't we taking action on climate change? Why don't we have clean water, you know, strong laws? Why are we drilling in Anwar? Why don't we have solar cars right now? Why do we have Fox News? If the Democrats are that good at rigging elections, why is there still student debt in the United States? Why aren't colleges free? If the Democrats are so good at rigging elections that they can basically make anything happen that they want, including kicking out Donald Trump. This is a multi-state effort, right? I mean, the Democrats apparently, according to Fox News, Stephen Miller was on there in Fox News saying, we have alternate electors who are voting. And we're going to present alternate slates to the states. And, of course, you know, this is what happened in 1876. You had four states, Oregon, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, as I recall, who submitted two slates of electors to the electoral, from the Electoral College, those four states. And as a result of that, neither Hayes nor Tilden won the majority of the votes. And it got thrown to the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives, after doing a whole long song and dance with committees and panels and special commissions and stuff, gave the election to the Republican, even though he lost the popular vote and he lost the Electoral College vote. He got fewer votes in both cases. But he became president. Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877, sworn in in March of 1877. That's what Stephen Miller went on Fox News saying, we're going to try and do this. We're still going to try to do this. Now, I don't think they have a chance in hell. I'm not worried about it at all. But this is the argument that they're making, that the Democrats are so good 
at rigging elections. If that's the case, how is it that Al Gore, who won the election by a half a million votes in 2000, wasn't president? How is it that Hillary Clinton, who won the vote by three million votes, wasn't president? It's, it's, it's really bizarre when you think about it. I mean, just, just, the, just the core, simple, straightforward logic of the whole thing. It's bizarre. Welcome back. Uh, just a couple of uh, data points here I wanted to share with you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. The first is, uh, this was a post over at DU by Great Bald Eagle that I find very troubling. He writes, my wife and I requested our absentee ballots on November 8th. The issue date on the Georgia My Voter page says 1120, November 20th. However, I, we still haven't received them. He called the uh, Georgia, you know, the election worker for an election person for Fulton County, which is where he lives. And she said, quote, I'm qu- again quoting from his post. She said the issue date represents the date the elections officials requested for a third party called Runback Election Services to mail the ballots out. She said they had been getting calls just like mine nonstop for the last few weeks because of Runback's delays with typically 20 calls in the queue throughout the day. She said, quote, it's ridiculous. Now, you recall in Ohio and Pennsylvania, a lot of people didn't get their absentee ballots because the company that printed them and mailed them out was flying a Trump flag on the flagpole out in front of their offices. And eh, for some reason, they were just like, months late in getting out a lot of absentee ballots, particularly into big cities. What a weird coincidence. Now, if that had hurt the Republicans, you can bet that there would be a lawsuit at the Supreme Court right now about that. It appears that the same thing or something very similar to this is happening right now in Georgia. I don't know anything about runback election services, and I have no idea how factual this report is, but I've found, you know, the people who post on Democratic Underground to be fastidious about their accuracy. So take this as hearsay, but fairly alarming hearsay. And my question is, what the hell is going on in Georgia? I made a comment that suggested that I was less than happy with the debate with Kelly Loeffler and Reverend Warnock because he wasn't fighting back. I could could just imagine Bernie Sanders in that same debate taking her apart and leaving her in pieces around the floor. And Reverend Warnock was very, very polite and, you know, thoughtful and considerate. And he did, you know, point out some of her lies and he did point out some of the contradictions. But I found myself wanting him to be more of a fighter. And then I saw this post. This is uh, from uh, DSC over at DU. I'll just read it to you. It's very short. But it caused me to realize that I was thinking totally as a white guy. This is white privilege in action, right? I was just totally thinking as a white guy. And this is the post. Black men can't attack white women in the South and get away with it. Warnock was as aggressive as he was able to be with her. I have no idea whether it'll be enough or whether the debate will wind up being irrelevant to the outcome. But he, had he been more aggressive than he was, that would have mattered. A whole big bunch. We would have seen the whole angry black man thing over and over and over again. Don in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, first, I, I want to wish you and your screener, I think her name's Joyce, happy holidays. Uh, yes. First part of, earlier this year, I, I called in and, and she wouldn't put me on, but uh, when I called later, I just start spouting about things that I would that I wanted to say, and she said, oh, yeah, okay, this guy's okay. So anyway, I wanted to <laughs> know if there's somebody in the political arena who has still got the removal of the college electorate on, on the radar. Because I think that we could just... Eliminate you mean the Electoral College? The Electoral College, yeah, just get rid of that. Or if there's somebody who is still trying to do that in the political... The entire Democratic Party. party. Yeah, well, yes. Whoever's in, yeah, I guess it's in the Democratic Party. Is there somebody that's doing that? Yeah. Here's the deal, Don. There's only two ways you can get rid of the Electoral College. The first is by constitutional amendment, because it's in the Constitution. And amending the Constitution requires a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate and three-quarters of the states. And the Republicans are loving the Electoral College because the last Republican president who won his initial election 
with a simple majority of Americans was George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988. So we have not had a Republican president elected by the people since 1988. Every single one of them has been elected by the Electoral College, George W. Bush and Donald Trump. So number one. So the Republicans love the Electoral College. So they won't go along with a constitutional amendment. The second way to do it is uh, the Constitution says individual states may decide how their electors are to cast their votes. And as a consequence of that, 48 of the 50 states have said, whoever gets the most votes in our state, all of our electors must vote for them. So even though uh, Michigan might be 51% Biden, 45% Trump, 100% of Michigan's electors are going to go for, for, for Biden, right? And that's true of 48 states. The other two states are Maine and Nebraska. And what they've said is that we're going to split it up by congressional district, these two congressional districts, and each congressional district will give all, you know, their vote to whoever got the majority, which is a little closer to proportional representation. So because the Constitution says individual states can decide how their electors are going to vote, There's this thing called an interstate compact. It's the nationalpopularvote.com is the website. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And when you get enough states to represent 270 electoral votes, which is what it takes to elect a president right now, when you get enough states saying that we will change our state law so that whoever wins the national popular vote that's who our electors will vote for, you have functionally ended the Electoral College. And right now, the number of states is, I don't don't recall the number off the top of my head, you can see it at nationalpopularvote.com, but the number of states that have signed up so far is just a little short of 200 electoral votes. I think it's 196 electoral votes, but I could be wrong. Check, Check my numbers. And they've got a ways to go. But there are a couple of states, I believe Colorado is one of them, that have recently come under Democratic control. I believe uh, Arizona, New Mexico, who are not parties to this thing, who may become parties to this. And I think that we're probably less than 10 years away from it working. My hope is that we're less than four years away from working, from it working. But that's what has to happen. Did I answer your question, Don? What were the, the states that have where the governors don't have to abide by the the popular vote, and they can throw their electors to whoever they decide. Right. What, what states are those? Well, every state under the Constitution can do that. However, there are 17 states who have amended their constitutions to say whoever gets the majority of the votes will have to will have to do this. And that's why for the National Popular Vote Compact to work in some states, it's actually going to require like, you know, a ballot measure that will amend the Constitution as well as change the law. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't I don't have the you know, this is not okay. right at the tip of my brain and I don't have the list in front of me. But if you go to nationalpopularvote.com, you'll, you'll find the whole thing. Thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolutionary Love by Michael Lerner, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. This is from the introduction. We earthlings need to build a fundamental change of consciousness into ourselves and in every part of our national and global society in order to achieve the economic and political changes necessary 
to prevent the destruction of the life support system of Earth, in order to end global and domestic poverty and wealth inequality, to defeat racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of xenophobia, to protect human rights, to achieve social, economic, and environmental justice, and to achieve lasting global peace. This new consciousness is possible and can emerge through embracing revolutionary love, the struggle for a caring society, and a new bottom line in all our economic, political, legal, educational, and cultural institutions. This manifesto is written to show you how this can happen and how you can help make it possible. Liberal and progressive movements need to move beyond a focus on economic entitlements and political rights to embrace a new discourse of love, kindness, generosity, and awe. These are not some new agey smile and be nice formula or let's get into self-transformation before we change society kind of thinking. I'm calling for both our American and global societies to embrace a new bottom line so that every economic, political, societal, and cultural institution is considered efficient, rational, and or productive, not according to the old bottom line of how much these institutions maximize money, power, or ego, but rather how much they maximize love and generosity, kindness and forgiveness, ethical and environmentally sustainable behavior, social and economic justice. This new bottom line seeks to enhance our capacity to transcend a narrow utilitarian or instrumental way of viewing human beings and nature so that we respond to other people as embodiments of the sacred instead of thinking of them primarily in terms of how much they can serve our interests. And also so that we can respond to nature not solely as a resource for human needs but rather through awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this universe. I call this new consciousness revolutionary love. And its goal is to create the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. The vehicle to create this new consciousness, we will call the Love and Justice Movement, and eventually the Love and Justice Party. The revolutionary possibility of love is the kind of love that breaks through those distortions of consciousness that make it difficult to implement a national environmental policy or to end the many forms of oppression that permeate our world. To really embrace revolutionary love requires us to develop a strategy way beyond anything currently being given serious attention in the media, the political parties, and even many of the social change movements. And it requires us to move beyond what seems realistic in terms of the contemporary frame of discourse. Yet there is no alternative if we're to solve the environmental crisis and prevent our society in the coming decades from moving further and further into reactionary nationalism and repression of our own humanity. We need a global mobilization of billions of people to solve the problem. And this manifesto outlines the first steps to making possible such a mobilization. To understand the urgency, let's consider our current environmental crisis. In 1992, thousands of scientists issued a collective statement warning of the impending dangers to the life support system of planet Earth. 25 years later, in December 2017, 15,364 scientists from 184 countries signed a new statement that reads, in part, Since 1992, with the exception of stabilizing the stratospheric ozone layer, humanity has failed to make sufficient progress in generally solving these unforeseen environmental changes. And alarmingly, most of them are getting far worse. Especially troubling is the current trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change, due to rising greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels and agricultural production, particularly from farming ruminants for meat consumption. Moreover, we have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated, or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. Humanity is now being given a second notice. We are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geologically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a planetary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. By failing to adequately limit population growth, reassess the role of an economy rooted in growth, reduce greenhouse gases, incentivize renewable energy, protect habitat, restore ecosystems, curb pollution, halt defaunation, and constrain invasive alien species. Humanity is not taking 
the urgent steps needed to safeguard our imperiled biosphere. End of quote from the scientists. The book is Revolutionary Love by Rabbi Michael Lerner. Let's try Sherry in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Sherry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I've been following you for many, many years. I admire you so much. I wanted to mention that I think it would be very helpful for you to actually go into one of our counties here and see the election process as it happens. I've been a, on a board for years at Washington County. It's apparently kind of a model for other counties across the nation. They've at least educated people in Florida as well on what we do here. Remember that here we have a paper trail, and here I think the only transmission electronically is of the final result to the Secretary of State's office. Bev Harris came to Portland to lecture some years ago. She's been all over this black box voting of these issues, and she wrote a book back in 2003, and she has a website, blackboxvoting.org. The reason my hair's on fire so badly today is because it sounds to me like you may have missed the story that ran in Ross' story on uh, why the numbers behind Mitch McConnell's re-election don't add up. It suggests to me that McConnell has stolen his election on crooked voting machines, perhaps owned by ESNS, or I'm not sure, but a long time ago, Diebold and ESNS, I believe, were owned by brothers who both were stealing elections through software. I read the article on Raw Story. I've, I've seen it in multiple places. I also read a lengthy, essentially debunking of the story over at Daily Kos, where they're saying, wait a minute, guys. One of the charges, for example, was that there were more registered voters in a particular county than there were adults in that county. Right. Um, that's the exact same argument that Republicans are using to purge voting rolls, aggressively purge voting rolls in states like Georgia. The fact of the matter is that when I, Louise and I moved from Washington, D.C. back to Oregon, we didn't tell uh -huh. Washington, D.C. we were gone. So, you know, I may still be on the voting rolls in D.C. Now, it's been a couple of years, so odds are they finally figured out that I no longer live there and taken me off the rolls. But people don't tell states when they move out of state. And they don't tell states when they die, typically, or the death records are not cross-referenced with the voter records. So you always, in every state, in every county in the country, depending on how aggressive the Secretary of State is about keeping the voting rolls clean, you always have dead people and people who've moved on the voting rolls. It doesn't mean that they vote, but they're on the voting rolls. Okay, and, yeah, okay. You know, so, I, not to contradict you, but this has nothing to do with voting rolls. It has everything to do with how, how it's transmitted and the hacking of software. Yeah. Uh, I think so it's, please, you know, yeah. Sherry, I'm willing to acknowledge that it's possible. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, given, given who the Rosevich brothers were back in the day, although I don't think that they own ESNS anymore, um, uh -huh. You know, there's a long and weird history to that. And, you know, they were end time uh, fundamentalist Christians. You know, I get all that. And I know what happened to Don Siegelman down in Alabama, where a guy just, you know, changed the, the spreadsheet, basically, and said, OK, here's the new numbers. And it's entirely possible that something like that happened in Kentucky. I'm just not sure that what we have right now is strong, strong enough evidence that I'm willing to go on the air and endorse it. I want to see more work done on this. Sherry, thank you for the call. I, you know, I'm concerned. Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on Sirius XM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Barbara in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hey, my question is, who is paying for all these frivolous lawsuits that Trump is filing trying to turn this election over? Is it taxpayer money or is it coming out of his own pocket? I guarantee you it's not coming out of his own pocket. I believe that they're being funded by jointly by the RNC and the Donald Trump re-election committee. But exactly who's paying for it and who's doing what? You know, Rudy Giuliani said he wasn't being paid. We don't know if Sidney Powell is being paid. She's been fired, but she's not been fired. And, you know, I mean, it's just it's all kinds of weirdness. 
But I guarantee you that nothing's coming out of Trump's pocket. He never pays his bills. I mean, the city of El Paso is still trying to recover, I think it's a million dollars for security for when he came down there and did his rally, his border wall rally back three years ago. He still hasn't paid. There are literally dozens of communities around America where the police showed up to provide security for Donald Trump or paid overtime by the city. And cities bill venues for that kind of security where Trump and the Trump campaign have not paid those cities. It's happening all over the country. So it may be that he's not even paying his lawyers. God only knows that the quality of the uh, of the lawsuits would indicate that they're not serious lawyers. But that's another one of the great mysteries that I think probably we'll figure out over the course of the next year, Barbara, once Trump is out of office. Thanks for the call. David in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Uh, good to talk to you again. Okay, here's my thing with Georgia. With all this suppression going on in Georgia, they're closing down the polls, and they're doing so many, I think, things that are against the law, like you said one time, on 1955. How come there's not more of an uproar with the other Democrats? How come the other Democrats from other states, even, uh, 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 even Biden, should step in and say, hey, let's get the Justice Department going on here. I mean, this is against the law, trying to hold people from voting. And uh, just to answer that, the lady who went on before me, uh, who said that she thought the machines were rigged, I don't think so, because if that was so, then they they won't need to uh, stop the polls and close down the polls, that is, and uh, uh, stop people from voting, because automatically they, they could cheat with the machine. So why stop the people from voting? But well, anyways, she was talking uh, about Kentucky, is, not right. Georgia. Oh, well, you know, and, okay, you know, Mitch McConnell that. went from polling at 19 percent to winning by 54 percent in like three days, which has got a lot of people right. scratching their heads. Right. But to your earlier question, David, here's the problem. If the government of Georgia had decided that they were going to go around and challenge people who own guns and say, go door to door, knocking on doors and say, do you have a gun? And if somebody said yes, they'd say, well, I don't think you have a right to have a gun. Give it up. We're going to take away your gun. If they tried to do that, they would be stopped by the courts because the Supreme Court in the Heller decision a couple of decades ago ruled that Americans have an absolute right to own a gun. So you have a right to own a gun. And if the government tries to take away your gun, they have to go to court. You don't have to go to court. They have to go to court and prove why you're so, such a dangerous person that you shouldn't own a gun. On the other hand, you don't have a right to vote. The Supreme Court ruled in Bush v. Gore in 2000, there is no constitutional right to vote. And so if the state of Georgia wants to take away your vote, they don't have to go to court to take away your vote like they would have to go to court to take away your gun. All they have to do is just do it. They just take away your vote. If you want to get your vote back, you've got to get Greg Pallast and the ACLU and a bunch of lawyers. You've got to sue the state. So it's upside down. It should be that we have a right to vote and a privilege to carry a gun. But instead, we have a right to a gun and a privilege to vote. And we need to have an absolute right to vote written into the law. And that was what H.R. 1 did. That's what the Democrats did with the very first piece of legislation they passed two years ago when the Democrats finally took over the House of Representatives. And Mitch McConnell has consistently, steadily refused to even allow a hearing on the bill that already passed the House of Representatives with Republicans as well as Democrats. So right. uh, that's what's going on. It's flat out nuts. David, I got, you know, I'm sorry, I got to run word. Uh, Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Randy, we have a little less than a minute. You got a quick one? Okay, Tom, quick. On the reference to ES&S, I went on WikiLeaks, and I believe that ES&S is owned by the Omaha World Herald, which is in turn owned by Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett. And that has, it has changed hands in the last few years. And I'd like to touch on one other deal. The governor the, with the ES&S connections in the last You're election. You're talking Kentucky? Right. There's no wonder why he couldn't step up and say something on the behest of Donald Trump to try and swing an election for him when he has so much Well, Andy, Andy Beshear is the governor of Kentucky, and he's a Democrat, if I'm yep. remembering correctly. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm oh, right I'm- on that. But, but I, I, you know, we need to raise hell. I mean, the bottom line is now, and thank you, Randy, now at least it's part of a national conversation. What's with voting machines? Why aren't we voting on paper like every other democracy, in a developed democracy in the world? 
let's start voting on paper. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Kelly in Morristown, Tennessee, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Kelly, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you for your saneness. I want to know what happened to term limits for Congress and how would we go about getting that back? Didn't it used term to be are... two six-year terms for Senate and four four-year terms for the House? No, we never had term limits as law. Um, what happened was when New Gingrich came in in the 90s, 96 I think was the election where he rode to power, he and a whole bunch of people with him took these term limit pledges that might be the numbers you described, I don't frankly recall. But there's a reason why Republicans love to talk about term limits and Democrats generally don't. And we've seen now the absolute proof of this, this is no longer theoretical, because we've had a number of states that have put term limits into place with regard to their House and Senate, or assemblies, or whatever they may call them. And what happens is, if you come, you know, Kelly, if you were elected as a, as a new member of Congress, you know, let's say in your state of Tennessee, you were elected to the legislature, typically the first thing that you would do is find somebody in the, who's already in the legislature, who's been around for a decade or so, who knows where the bodies are buried, who knows how things can get done, who knows how to you know, get in line to get a good office, who knows how to get a bill written, who knows the smartest and best people around who, can, you know, who are with the various support agencies within the, in the uh, state government there that can help you get that legislation done. And that person would become your mentor. That's an absolute normal process. And it happens in, you know, for elected officials literally all over the country and everything from city councils to uh, you know, the United States Senate. With term limits, what happens is that that essentially semi-permanent infrastructure of old timers, the, you know, whether it's 5% or whether it's 50% of the people who've been around for quite a while, that infrastructure of old timers gets wiped out. So who then is holding the institutional memory? Who is the person that if you were elected, Kelly, to the Tennessee House of Representatives and this was a term limit year and everybody got wiped out or everybody had gotten wiped out in the last, you know, in the the previous election and this election, say it spreads over a couple of years, who do you turn to? Well, the only permanent infrastructure that's left are the lobbyists. And what we see is in states that have term limits for their legislators, the lobbyists have massively more influence over the legislative process. The lobbyists tend to drive the legislative process, and lobbyist capture of new politicians is huge. And that's why Republicans love to talk about term limits, and that's why Democrats would be the first to suggest that, no, you know, having Ted Kennedy in Congress for 40 years, having Joe Biden in Congress for 40 years is a good thing. If, if somebody is a good member of Congress, you want them to stick around if they're willing to, if they're committed to it. On the other hand, if it's some, you know, cretin, then we do have term limits in the form of elections, and you do everything you can to get them term limited out by virtue of getting them unelected. So uh, I'm not a fan of tournaments for that reason, Kelly. And, but I get your you know, frustration, and that's what usually causes people to bring this up is, oh, my God, my representatives are not representing me. They're not doing a good job. And uh, so let's just kick them out. Well, that, that's not the easy solution. The solution is, is to get money out of politics, frankly, so that the lobbyists can't own them. But, Kelly, thank you. It's a very good and important question. Thank you for calling and asking On this week's Science Revolution, Vien Trong with Tom Steyer's Climate Justice joins the show with a vision for a green, red, and blue climate new deal. That vision includes Native Americans, a blue new deal for our threatened oceans, and a green new deal for our coastal communities. Dr. Michael Greger joins us. Have you gained a few COVID pounds in his new How Not to Diet cookbook? Dr. Greger tells how you can eat your way to a healthy, sustainable weight with plant-based meals. Terry Mills, president of the National Nursing Network, drops by on why a national 
National Nurse for Public Health is important. Plus, Laura Packard, the founder of Healthcare Voices, explains open enrollment under the ACA to help the 16-plus million uninsured Americans get themselves enrolled. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Rich and Cedro Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's up? Hello, Tom. Thanks to an uh, ex-co-worker, I have learned way more than I need to know about uh, what the quidiots and QAnon sense world are up to. And mm-hmm. two things I, I discovered a couple of years ago is that the increased religiosity and the cult-like atmosphere that was growing in that, and also mm-hmm. that things that are discussed in the Q world tend to get eventually get mainstream, especially if they're useful in the Trump world. And what I'm noticing now is they're out there proclaiming that Democrats are planning riots in the street when Trump, in their mind, wins. So basically they're doing what you predicted, too, an an expanded version of the BLM people with bricks and buses coming to your suburbs to bust things up. And now they're going nationwide with it. They're telling these people, they're planting this idea in their mind that there's going to be street fights. So we're going to see, you know, I would say it's, it's a call out to the mobs with guns on the right <laughs> to go out mm-hmm. and protect, oh, I don't know, polling places or, you know, Trump's victory. It's, it's scary because this is getting mainstream. It's, right now it's kind of bubbling to the surface in Q world, but it's, you know, like we saw with Caputo and uh, his little insane rant on uh, his Facebook forum. Yeah, Michael Caputo. Yeah. Yeah, this, this stuff yeah. Is bubbling to yeah we don't know if he got infected with that particular thought virus, but he was certainly, you know, over the edge. I mean, this is a guy with a very, very strange history, too. But is there a question in there in what you said? I mean, are you are, did you want well, to just say that or are you looking for a response from me? I, I was just uh, point, just kind of giving everyone's a heads up. I don't know. Do you see that? Does that make sense to you? Do. That, you know, they're setting their team. Yeah, this is this for, is. You know, this is early Nazism repackaged. This is, you know, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was published in 1902 by the Tsar's Secret Service, specifically to create hatred of Jews in order to blame Jews in Russia for the things, while Tsar Nicholas II and his family were basically stealing the country blind, they wanted to blame it on Jewish bankers and Jewish moneylenders and Jewish shop owners. And, you know, they just, they, they, they wanted to have a, a scapegoat, somebody to blame it on. Here in the United States, you know, our Jewish population, I think is only around 2% of our population, but our black and, and Hispanic populations are much more substantial. So, you know, QAnon has kind of readapted itself and then, of course, you know, white liberals and white Democrats, you know, the Hillary Clinton, you know, I mean, she was accused of being part of this thing with the Comet Pizza restaurant in D.C. and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, more numerous. And so, hey, pick on them. It is it is concerning because these, you know, if you look at what happened when the protocols reached their peak in Europe in the 1930s, in the late 1930s, people were killing each other. People were literally killing each other. Armed vigilantes in the streets. I mean, Kristallnacht came out of that, where the you know the, the windows of, of Jewish shop owners were smashed and synagogues were smashed. So much came out of this, and and again, they were directing it toward Jews. Now, instead of directing it, you know, saying that Jews are kidnapping white children or Christian children and draining their blood for matzah, which was the blood libel part of the protocols of the elders of Zion back in that day. Now they're saying Democrats or liberals or black people or Hispanics or all of the above, people who are not white Christians, are kidnapping white Christian children to do this with. And what's particularly ironic, Rich, is that it's the Trump administration that actually is kidnapping children and disappearing them. We have, you know, the, the Trump administration has lost over a thousand kids. We nobody has any idea where they are. Were they sold into slavery? We don't know. I mean, you know, if, if QAnon wanted to go nuts about children, I think that would be a good place for them to start. But, you know, that's not how it's going, and you know, it's very, very troubling. Rich, thanks a lot for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner, a memoir. This is from Chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. 
At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime. The cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30th, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. The morning headline was, Hitler called to president. That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions and both times there had been solemn declarations. Never again. Each time, never again had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price, indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again, this appeasement was formally renounced, and again and again, it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment, just so today. Then, as now, one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then, as now, it became apparent that their patience knew no bounds. At midday, the headline said, Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about five o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity informed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. For about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly, this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler, Reich's Chancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. Even with the Nazis, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but that would only make them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm that would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? Misguided ignoramuses, for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day, this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so and relied on that with far too much confidence. 
So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population in the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved, then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. Joe in Cupertino, California. Joe, we have a minute to the break. What's up? The gentleman that, uh, what is that, national public vote is John Coza. He happens to be a neighbor of mine. But I wanted to call and just huh. give a shout out to Senator Select, uh, Secretary of State Alex Padilla. He'd be the first Hispanic senator in California since, I don't know, Pio Pico. But it's just amazing that we have such a diverse, you know, state that we can do this. Forty percent of the residents yeah. of California are Hispanic origin. It's nice to have somebody that will represent them. I believe he's a very supportive of the Medicare for all. And he's into a lot. of. He is. He's been on this show. Yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, it's probably been 10 years. I think it was when he first became California secretary of state or maybe it was when he was in Congress. But Alex Padilla has been on this show. And I remember it well because I mispronounced his name on the air. <laughs> yeah, he's I, a good guy. This, yeah, I think that's a great selection. Anyway, happy holidays and be safe. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. Good talking to you. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Albert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.